It's April 26th, 1996, Hollywood, Florida. Nicknamed the Diamond of the Gold Coast, Hollywood sits between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Its sunny weather and golden beaches have attracted new residents since the 1920s. Hollywood has been the home of Edward Dobick since he was 17 when his family moved here from the small suburban town of Hyattsville, Maryland. To the people who know Edward Dobick, he's nothing out of the ordinary, the quintessential average Joe. He was married for 10 years, has three children, and worked steadily at the Seal Test Ice Cream Factory. That is, until his health declined. Now, aged 57, liver disease is killing him. Edward Dobeck lies in a hospital bed. He is frail and thin. His face is sunken and his eyes are a sickly yellow. Breathing is agonizing for Dobeck, and medication can only numb some of his pain. He could easily close his eyes and let death take him, but he holds on. Eyeing the bedside telephone, he calls the home of his brother, John. His sister-in-law, Jean Dobeck, picks up and Edward pleads with her to come see him before it's too late. Jean assumes he doesn't want to be alone in his final moments, and she obliges since Edward's brother, John, is out of town. It's uncertain why Edward doesn't speak to his ex-wife or his children. Maybe he can't face telling them the truth. Edward, you see, allegedly harbors a dark secret, one he could easily keep to himself. But the lie he's lived with eats at him. This could be his last chance to clear his conscience before he dies. Jean sits at his bedside. Her furrowed brow glistens with sweat from the blistering temperatures outside. Her brother-in-law's face scrunches, but not with pain, with grief. His yellow eyes well up and he tries to speak. Edward struggles to get the words out. Finding what strength he has left, he takes hold of her arm and tells her he murdered two girls. Jean's mouth goes dry and a jolt of panic goes through her. She doesn't know who or what he's talking about. Edward, a murderer? How can it be? But Jean can tell he's serious and asks, what girls does he mean? Edward hesitates, perhaps reliving the moments in his mind. Continuing to hold Jean's arm, he stares her dead in the eyes. In June 1955, when he and his brother John were teenagers living in Hyattsville, he liked two girls, Nancy Chomet and Michael Ann Ryan. Bucking up the courage, he tried to make a move on them, but the girls didn't respond in kind to his advances. They laughed at him. He was angry and humiliated. So on the last day of school, when students collected their report cards, he hid in the local park where the two girls often cut through. As they did, on that warm Wednesday morning, he shot them. Having confessed, Edward Dobeck dies. Now Jean carries the weight of her brother-in-law's dying words, but she doesn't tell the police straight away. In fact, she will wait almost a year. But why? 
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of two young girls, Nancy Chomet and Michael Ann Ryan, who were brutally gunned down on a summer morning in 1955. It's also the story about an investigation that stumped police for almost a quarter of a century. The families devastated by their loss and a confession that is, to this day, suspect. I'm a Stephanie Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the 15th of June, 1955, two teenage girls, Nancy Chomet, 16, and Michael Ann Ryan, 14, were shot and killed by an unknown gunman near Hyattsville, Maryland. It was a hateful and senseless crime that rocked the community. Parents kept their children inside for weeks, fearing their sons or daughters might be next. The authorities struggled to solve the double murder. Motives and suspects were almost impossible to pin down. 5,000 people were interviewed. 200 persons of interest were identified, and countless weapons were analyzed. If what Edward Dobeck supposedly told Gene is true, his confession will solve a 41-year-old cold case, providing answers for two families who have lived under the grim shadow of the deaths of their daughters. But there are reasons to doubt the confession. After all, no other witnesses were in the room when Edward confessed. And as it turns out, Jean Dobek and her husband John were known fraudsters. It's possible that Jean believed she'd be rewarded for producing a confession. But is there any evidence that Edward Dobek did indeed kill Nancy Chomet and Michael Ann Ryan? To find out, 
we'll need to travel back in time, back to that sunny summer day in 1955, which ended in unspeakable tragedy. It's June 1955, the year James Dean's film Rebel Without a Cause and Alfred Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief exploded in cinemas. Young people across America are swinging to Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his comments. And both America and Russia are in a race to conquer space. But in quiet Hyattsville, Maryland, students at Northwestern High School are just days away from their summer vacation. Nancy Chomet, aged 16, and Michael Ann Ryan, aged 14, are excited about the freedom summer promises. They are everything you'd expect of pretty and popular teenage girls in the 1950s. They dress fashionably, wearing long skirts and blouses, styling their hair into trendy soft bobs. There's not a person in school who doesn't know who they are. Nancy is involved in local clubs, and both girls are liked by her teachers and peers. Their families are well-connected and respected in the community. Nancy's father, Print, is a heavy equipment operator. A few years ago, he helped construct the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Michael Ann's father, Thomas, a former military man, is a police officer. The girls are everything Edward Dobeck, age 16, is not. Very few people in school even know Edward's name. And what they know about his family is limited to basic details. He lives with his parents and four brothers in Hyattsville. His father, Alexander, is a builder and landscaper. His mother, Wanda, is a homemaker. Edward is a thin, lanky kid who attends Northwestern High School. He has virtually no friends. In a school of jocks, cheerleaders, smart kids, and thespians, Edward is not part of any group, an outsider. But this apparently does not stop him from trying to make friends or coming on to attractive girls. According to some reports, an incident between Edward Dobeck, Nancy, and Michael Ann occurred during the 1955 school year. Despite his station in the social hierarchy, Edward allegedly tried to flirt with Nancy and Michael Ann. What was said exactly is not known, but his advances were rejected. The girls apparently laughed at him when they turned him down. As the giggling girls walked away from him, Edward, angry and humiliated, vowed to make them pay. But was he really angry enough to kill? It's 8 a.m. on Wednesday, June 15th, 1955. Nancy Shomet's home is a little over a mile from the high school in a recently developed area known as University Gardens. It's a picturesque neighborhood near the University of Maryland. Large red brick houses display their pristine green lawns and perfectly trimmed bushes. This morning, Nancy rushes downstairs wearing a pink dress with a flaring skirt and white shoes. In the kitchen, she finds her father, Print, with a steaming cup of coffee. Her younger brother, Print Jr., and her seven-year-old sister, Catherine, join them. Nancy's face beams with excitement. It's the last day of school. Classes are over and all that's left is for the students to collect their final report cards. Nancy is eager to get her results and enjoy the rest of her summer. She's so excited that she isn't even going to have breakfast, despite her little sister's pleas. 
She kisses Catherine and promises to make pancakes for her when she returns. She should only be gone an hour. Her father offers to drive Nancy to the school, but she declines. It's a nice day and she wants to walk. Besides, she and Michael Ann have made plans to go together. And with that, Nancy walks out the door. It is the last time her family will see her alive. It's shortly after 8 a.m. when Nancy meets Michael Ann. Together, the girls head towards the school. Per usual, they take a shortcut through Northwest Branch Park, just south of University Lane. They follow the dirt path surrounded by a lush green space with wooded areas and a small lake. Many of the new residents, like the Shomets and Ryans, have moved nearby because of the proximity to the lovely park. It's an ideal place for kids to play and for families to visit. However, recently the community has had issues with the park. It's become a point of congregation for wayward teens and drunks. Every morning, beer cans and whiskey bottles litter its paths from nighttime gatherings. The public worries that these parties will invite unwanted riffraff. But for the most part, it has remained a safe and inviting space. The girls make their way around the bend in the path through the area known as Picnic Grove. Perhaps the two friends talk about what it will be like when Michael Ann goes to high school, what clubs she might join, the parties she might attend, the boys they might like. But their conversation is cut short. A gunshot cracks like thunder in the park. Michael Ann screams. Nancy falls forward, feeling the blow of a bullet hit her body. A second shot claps. Michael Ann is hit. Amidst the chaos, the two girls try to run away. They can't see the shooter, so they don't know what direction is safe. The park has ample places to hide between the thick areas of brush and trees. But anywhere they go, they might head directly towards the gunman. In a panic, they decide to run back the way they came, but they don't get far. The mysterious attacker fires again. Nancy goes down first. She rolls on the ground, but doesn't get up. Another shot sends Michael Ann down next. As life drains from their bodies, the mysterious shooter approaches them. The gunman fires several more shots into the bodies of Nancy Chomet and Michael Ann Ryan. One might suspect the sound of gunshots would get people's attention in nearby houses. It doesn't. Teenagers are often firing guns in the woods. It's become a community problem. The park's no-gunning-permitted signs are speckled with bullet holes. And frequently, local dogs or cats who venture into the woods are shot. Victims of trigger-happy youth. Meanwhile, at the Showmet residence, Print grows worried about his daughter, Nancy. It's close to 10 a.m. and she should be home by now. There's a knock at the door, and Print finds 16-year-old Maynard Simmons, Nancy's boyfriend, looking for her. Print tells the boys she went to school to collect her report card, but Simmons says he hasn't seen her. Print and Simmons hop in the car and decide to go find the girls. First, they check the school, but it's a dead end. They are told no one has seen Nancy. She's not picked up her report card, so where is she? It's a parent's worst nightmare, not knowing where your child is. 
tragically, the Shomets' fears are about to be confirmed. It's 10.30 a.m. Barbara Huff, a local 12-year-old girl, walks her spaniel named Tiny in Picnic Grove. Tiny tugs on his leash and barks furiously. He's picked up a scent and is dragging his owner towards the source. As hard as Barbara tries to keep the dog on track, she cannot. Tiny beelines for a fallen oak tree. Barbara follows him only to be confronted by a horrifying scene. Hidden beneath a layer of twigs is Nancy Chomet's body. It lies on its side against the tree, bloody and riddled with bullet holes. Barbara runs home to tell her mother that she found a girl's body in the park. Her mother can't quite believe it, but goes to investigate. Seeing the body, she immediately alerts the police. The police arrive at the scene and Barbara's mother shows officers the body. It chills their blood. Vicious murders just don't happen in a town like this. Quickly, the police search the area for clues, a discarded gun, perhaps, and bullet shells. Instead, they find the body of Michael Ann Ryan, also riddled with bullet holes and hidden under twigs. Quickly, the police make preparation to canvas the area for witnesses. The heavy police presence in the park tips off the community that something awful has happened, and word begins to spread. Nancy's seven-year-old sister Catherine sits outside her house playing with a friend when two local schoolboys approach her. They say, there's a girl in the park who looks like your sister, who's unconscious. Little Catherine is desperate to know what happened to her sister. She runs as fast as she can to the park. Her brother, Print Jr., is not far behind. Print Sr., who hasn't been home more than 10 minutes from looking for Nancy at the school, overhears the boys and immediately drives to the scene. Nancy's father speaks with the police who confirm there's been a murder. Two teenage girls. While Print Sr. is busy trying to find out more details, Print Jr. and Catherine arrive at the scene and they can't believe their eyes. Their sister Nancy lies on the ground her clothes covered in blood. Catherine runs home trying to process what she's just seen, leaving Print Jr. and her father behind. She sees her mother on the street corner saying, Mommy, Nancy's dead. Catherine's mother is horrified and confused by the news. It can't be true, she must have thought. After seeing Nancy's body, Print Jr. doesn't come home for hours. He is in a daze and sits on a bench in the ball field. For three hours, all he can think about is who killed his big sister and what he's going to do about it. When he finally returns home, he is confronted by the chaotic scene of detectives and neighbors filing in and out. Inside the living room, Nancy's mother sobs on the sofa. Her friends hug her. In contrast, Nancy's father is calm and reserved, talking to the detectives, hopeful for answers and justice. All this standing around frustrates Print Jr. He decides to take matters into his own hands. 
he marches to the cabinet where his BB gun is locked up. Taking it out in front of his family and detectives, he says, I'm going to get that bastard. His father grabs the boy before he can leave the house and takes the gun from him. The police assure the family that they will find the person responsible. After all, in a small town like Hyattsville, someone must have seen something. Little do they know, they've just inherited one of the most perplexing cases in American history. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases, every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history, a vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file, others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. For the local police, it's been a tireless and macabre day. At the scene, early examinations have indicated that Nancy had been shot 11 times. One shot was at close range, directly between the eyes. Michael Ann was shot seven times. She was hit in the chest, ankle, and back. It appears that their bodies were moved 160 feet from where they were initially killed. The police determine whoever shot them is a good marksman. The gunman opened fire on the girls from 150 feet away, and the wounds on their back confirm they tried to run. Based on the slugs recovered near Nancy's body, police speculate that they are looking for a 22 repeating rifle, likely a Marlin, a popular gun at the time. The police suspect the killer may have discarded the weapon in the woods or in the nearby stream. Immediately, they search the area and dam up the stream to check the dry bed, but they find nothing. While the murder scene is canvassed for clues, other officers are looking for suspects. Michael Ann Ryan's father, Thomas, is standing with a fellow police officer outside his house. In the distance, he spots a young man with a pompadour haircut lingering in the distance. Thomas knows the boy. It's 18-year-old Norman Hager, a recent graduate from the high school. Norman had a fleeting relationship with Michael Ann and had recently taken an interest in Nancy. But this was nothing more than an innocent high school fling. Suddenly, Thomas starts to chase him, believing he may know something about his daughter's murder. Norman is quickly taken into custody on nothing more than a father's suspicion. Norman is detained for hours, 
subjected to grueling interviews and multiple lie detector tests, all of which he passes. He tells the police everything he knows. At 9 a.m., he was at the park looking for Nancy and Michael Ann after dropping off two friends at the high school. Why he chose the park is unclear. Perhaps he knew it was the girl's typical route to school, but he didn't see them there, so he left. Norman is then scratched off the suspect list, but he does give the police a potentially valuable lead. He says he saw a man sitting on a log near where Nancy's body was found. Norman adds that there was a rifle across his knees. As it turns out, he isn't the only one who saw a man holding a gun in the park that morning. Local construction workers also met someone carrying a rifle. They add that this man wore a sling of cartridges across his chest. Hanging from his webbed belt was an army-type canteen and a sheathed knife. The man is dubbed the Pancho Villa suspect due to his attire resembling that of the Mexican general and revolutionary Francisco Pancho Villa. The Pancho Villa suspect reportedly asked the construction workers for a drink of water and told them he was a patient at a nearby military mental hospital. Adding to this, not long after the murder, the police receive an anonymous phone call from a young man claiming to have seen the Pancho Villa suspect in Picnic Grove that morning firing a rifle. A sketch of the man is drawn up and begins to circulate, but it doesn't produce any results. The police follow up with the military hospital, but no one there matches the description of the suspect. But he isn't their only lead. A local boy tips off the police about the Dobeck family. John Dobeck, aged 14, Edward's younger brother, is one of the many neighborhood kids who owns a 22 caliber Marlin microgroove rifle the very same weapon police suggested was used on the girls. The boy describes John as a gangster type. However, the police do not take this seriously. Neither John nor Edward Dobeck is ever considered a suspect in the investigation. The cops are stumped, hitting roadblocks at every turn. They continue to doggedly investigate, but as months turn into years, hope of ever finding the girl's killer fades the case grows cold, becoming nothing more than a painful memory. Until one day, three decades after the brutal slaying, a mysterious ad appears in the local newspaper, bringing the case back from the dead. It's February 1990. 35 years have passed since the death of Michael Ann Ryan and Nancy Chomet. Michael Ann Ryan's father, Officer Thomas, died of a stroke on the 10th. Her sisters Rita, Ruth, and Chris are with their mother at the family home. At a time of grief like this, it's easy to imagine Michael Ann is also on everyone's mind. While in town, an old family friend shows Rita the February 11th copy of the Washington Post. Her heart is suddenly in her throat and for good reason. Someone has placed an in-memoriam dedicated to Michael Ann and Nancy Chomet. The shock of it reopens old wounds. No one could have expected someone to post this the day after their father's death. The coincidence is staggering. The sisters, baffled and disturbed, 
show the memoriam to their mother. The burning question on their mind is, who placed it? Across town, Nancy's brother, Print Jr., is asking himself the very same thing. He too came across the strange ad and is utterly baffled. Why would a memoriam for the girls appear in February when the anniversary of Nancy and Michael's death is in June? Reading it, Print Jr. is reminded of a strange tip he received a few years back. A mysterious man, claiming to be a retired CIA agent, called him saying he knows who killed the girls. The man said, I have this information and I'm going to the police and everybody laughs at me. I told the people in the neighborhood and they laughed at me. What the two families don't yet know is that the memoriam and this caller are connected. It's June, 1990, four months after the mysterious memoriam appeared in the local newspaper. A man named William Mac Newman storms into Prince George's County Police Headquarters in Landover, Maryland. He claims to be a retired CIA agent and wants to speak with a detective in charge of the Nancy and Michael Ann murder case. Newman is in his late 50s with thin brown-gray hair and wire-rim glasses. He is trim, in good shape, and confident. He accuses the cops of not taking the cold case seriously and wants to know why more hasn't been done. At first, the cops are dismissive. Newman openly admits that he didn't even know Nancy and Michael Ann back in 1955. But when he claims to know who killed them, the police are ready to listen. The detective assigned to the case is informed. That man is homicide detective Steve Ricker. Ricker is an 18-year veteran with salt and pepper hair and a bushy mustache. He grew up in Hyattsville, where the murders happened. Even though he was five at the time, he can still recall how scared the neighborhood children were. Parents would warn the kids at dinner time to be safe when out. Could this stranger finally help solve the murder that has haunted his hometown for 35 years? The conference room in which Ricker and Newman sit has lifeless white walls, speckled linoleum floors, and stinks of stale tobacco. There's an empty ashtray on the table, but neither men smoke. A thick folder is in front of Newman. It contains 20 years of his research. What Newman doesn't know is Ricker has been following up on the memoriam someone placed in the post in February. But so far, he hasn't turned up any new leads. Clearly, this man is deeply infatuated with the case. Could he be behind the bizarre stunt? When asked, Newman freely admits that he's responsible for placing the ad in the post, explaining, I did it to get somebody's attention. Since the 1970s, Newman says the police have shrugged off his attempt to help, but that hasn't stopped him from investigating the murder. He's spoken with Print Jr. Shomet and even tried talking to former suspects. Newman also claims he lost his job with the CIA over this case. After retiring as an official employee, he became a contractor for the agency. But upon their learning that he was privately investigating the Ryan Shomet case, they did not renew his contract. Ricker looks the former CIA agent over 
He's eccentric, but determined, perhaps even obsessive. Still, he asks Newman to tell him his theories on what happened to the two girls in 1955. Newman believes the killer knew Nancy. He was waiting there for her. Why else would he put 11 bullets in her? When asked why someone would kill the two girls, Newman says, maybe she laughed at him. If Nancy had made fun of the killer or laughed at him, it might have pushed him over the edge. Ricker is impressed with Newman. He's an intelligent guy with solid theories. But who does Newman believe killed the girls? Newman recalls seeing a sketch of a suspect in the newspaper in 1957. He recognized the face and believed it to be a man he knew in his local area. In this reported sketch, the suspect is depicted with a beard. Newman's acquaintance at the time had a similar looking face and beard. However, two days after the sketch is released, Newman claims this man shaved his facial hair. Could he have been trying to throw investigators off his scent? But there's a problem. The sketch Newman refers to cannot be found. The only sketch on file is the Pancho Villa suspect, which Newman says is not the one he saw. Still, Ricker takes down the information. He asks why he never came forward. Newman hangs his head. His eyes are contemplative. I showed the picture around and everybody laughed at me. I didn't go to the police because I was scared. This guy might come after me and if I was wrong, it would ruin the guy's reputation. Ricker accepts Newman's explanation, but before the interview concludes, asks him to take a lie detector test. Without hesitation, Newman agrees. Newman is hooked up to the polygraph machine. Cords and sensors are strapped to his chest. An armband is secured to his left arm. One by one, questions are asked. For every response, the needle scratches the paper. The examiner carefully watches the graph. When the test is finished, the examiner tells Newman there are problems with half a dozen of his answers. The test doesn't show he's lying, per se, but the results are inconclusive. Newman is insulted and believes that the police are trying to make him a suspect. He storms out of the police station, leaving his files behind and giving Ricker full access to his research materials. Not only does Ricker review them, he revisits the murder site and re-interviews family members and key suspects. However, holes quickly emerge in Newman's theory and his prime suspect is cleared of all suspicion. Perhaps as a result, the name of this individual is never made public. For Ricker, the case grows cold once again. But when the Washington Post learns about Newman's supposed suspect and his confrontation with Ricker, they want to know more. After all, this is a case that's haunted the area for decades. The public is desperate for answers, even after all these years. In 1991, Newman sits down with a Washington Post reporter. He is one of many being interviewed regarding the Ryan Shomet case. Others include Detective Ricker, Nancy's brother Print Jr., Michael Ann Ryan's sister Catherine, and more. Newman reiterates what he told Ricker. 
The killer likely knew the victims and was possibly motivated by revenge. Perhaps the girls laughed at him or rejected his advances. Newman is annoyed, claiming the police think he's a kook, unhelpfully meddling in their investigation. He also believes Ricker suspects him of being involved with a murder because he placed the memoriam in February 1990. Furthermore, a vague link was also found between Newman and Nancy Chomette. As it turns out, Newman attended St. John's College High School, graduating in 1951. St. John's is a 30-minute drive away from Nancy's school. In 1955, Newman would have been around 22 years old. It's not impossible that he may have crossed paths with Nancy and Michael Ann. After all, his close high school friend went on to marry a classmate of Nancy Chomette. But that's not all. Throughout his investigation, Newman has reiterated that the killer was likely motivated by the girls laughing at him. The article highlights that Newman himself is someone who doesn't like to be laughed at. He has mentioned several occasions where people ridiculed him for his theories regarding the murder and his supposed suspect. Could Newman's entire investigation have been a ruse, designed to throw investigators off his scent? Was he, in fact, the one who Nancy and Michael laughed at all those years ago? Despite the links in the article, Ricker says there is no proof that Nancy or Michael Ann knew or ridiculed Newman in 1955. On November 24, 1991, the Washington Post publishes the article, The Murder Story That Will Not Die, detailing their findings and firsthand testimonies. While it makes for an interesting read and raises a few eyebrows, it doesn't bring anyone closer to finding the true killer of Nancy and Michael Ann. But six years after the article is published, a new lead will emerge in the form of Edward Dobeck's alleged deathbed confession. It's January 23rd, 1997. The telephone rings in the Prince George's police station. The woman on the other end identifies herself as Jean Dobeck. She says she has information regarding a murder. It's been nine months since Edward Dobeck allegedly confessed to gunning down Nancy Chomet and Michael Ann Ryan on his deathbed. And since then, Jean's husband, John, has also died, leaving her widowed. Why Jean has waited so long to go to the police is a mystery. Perhaps she is uncertain if Edward was telling the truth, or maybe her husband forbade her from going public with the information. We will never know. Jean tells the police everything she claims Edward said to her on his deathbed, about how he flirted with Nancy and Michael Ann and how they didn't respond to his advances and laughed at him. Their rejection enraged him. He felt humiliated, so he waited for them that Wednesday morning. He sat in a tree, his rifle at the ready, and as the two girls came around the bend near Picnic Grove, he shot them. How Edward knew the two girls would walk through the park that morning is another mystery. Is this the break police have waited three and a half decades for? Finally, a likely suspect with a plausible motive. But holes quickly emerge in Jean's account. She admits that there are no other witnesses to the alleged confession, 
Furthermore, there is no written record of it, and Jean is unable to produce a murder weapon. There's nothing to say she isn't lying. Unfortunately, Jean's account of Edward Dobeck's deathbed confession is simply hearsay. All the police can do is add his name to the list of suspects. As it turns out, there's another problem with Jean Dobeck that calls her statement into question. Jean and her deceased husband are fraudsters. In 1997, Jean was convicted of insurance fraud, theft, and forgery in Alaska. Is Edward Dobeck's supposed confession just another of Jean's schemes? Perhaps she thought she could somehow profit from providing a fraudulent confession. It's June 15th, 2000. On the 40th anniversary of the Ryan Chomet case, the Washington Post publishes another article about the case and Edward Dobeck's alleged deathbed confession. They interview Jean's son, Ronald Dobeck, who tells the Washington Post that his parents were shady individuals. As a kid, he moved around frequently because they made their living pulling off insurance and fraud scams. They were not the normal breed, my parents, Ronald says. The Dobecks are a really weird family. Ronald acknowledges that his parents are untrustworthy, but states he believes his mother's story about Edward's confession. Remembering his uncle, Ronald claimed he was an angry man. He thinks it is certainly possible that Edward murdered Nancy and Michael Ann. But could Jean have had ulterior motives for coming forward nine months after Edward's death? After all, she's not the first to suggest the killer was laughed at by the girl. That was in the public domain as early as November 1991, when former CIA agent William Newman suggested it in the Washington Post. Is it possible that Jean read the article and decided to use the information to add credibility to her story? She knew her brother-in-law went to the same school as Nancy and Michael Ann. With no witnesses to contradict the confession, it's possible she thought there would be some kind of financial reward. The Washington Post tried to locate Jean for comment, but she could not be found, nor did her son Ronald know where she was. However, Edward's older brother Robert tells the Washington Post, it doesn't make sense to me. My brother Edward was the nicest guy you'd want to meet. He would never do anything like this. I can't understand why they're digging this up. Another man who does not believe Jean's story is Nancy's brother, Print Jr. The news that after 41 years, the police have a suspect brings him no relief. He and his family have been disappointed in the past by possible resolutions. Print Jr. tells the Post, after so many years, it's kind of an unemotional moment. There have been so many conflicting stories. I think for me to have closure at this point in time, somebody would have to walk up to me and say, I did it. Then I might believe them. The tragic case is now over 60 years old. With no fresh evidence or reliable leads, it's likely that the truth of what happened on that fateful summer's day back in 1955 will remain a mystery. Next time on Deathbed Confessions, we meet George Stinney Jr., a 14-year-old boy who was sentenced to death. 
1944, two schoolgirls were murdered in Algaloo, South Carolina. It was widely believed that George Stinney had killed them. However, years later, a deathbed confession surfaced from a wealthy resident of Alkaloo. His story suggested that Stinney was innocent and someone else had committed the crimes. But what does this confession mean for George Stinney? Almost seven decades after being convicted of a double murder, will his name be cleared? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Luke Coons. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.